Hi there, and welcome to the Mind Coaching Podcast. For Norwegian listeners, the Mental Trainer Podcast. I'm Frank Nielsen, and in today's episode, I talk to Professor Jordan B. Peterson. Professor Peterson has become world famous on YouTube with his lectures, which has been seen by millions of people around the world. Dr. Peterson is a former Harvard professor of clinical psychology and is now working as a professor of psychology at the University of Toronto. He has written the book Maps of Meaning, The Architecture of Belief. He has also authored or co-authored more than 80 academic research articles on a wide variety of psychological topics and is one of the, one of the team behind the online program Self-Authoring. If you haven't checked out Self-Authoring, I really enjoyed it. Check out Self-Authoring if you haven't checked it out already. The first time Jordan was a guest on the podcast, he talked about why some old negative memories are reoccurring, how we all have our own map of the world, and the importance of going outside our comfort zone. You can hear the first episode on YouTube or on iTunes. If you want to listen to it on iTunes, you can find the Mind Coaching Podcast, or you can check it out on YouTube and at the Mental Training Podcast. In today's episode, we talk about what is personality? Why women feel more negative emotions than men? The importance of understanding a child's personality, what we as parents can do about it. Why high Q is an advantage, how it can be measured in a short time. Techniques for depression, is it possible to improve those aspects of yourself that are weak? How we ask ourselves different questions, based on, for example, if you're an extrovert or an introvert. How different personality types look at the world, I should identify which of the five personality traits you belong, that can be a wise thing to do, well personality traits you should look for in a partner, and much, much, much more, I really enjoyed this episode, Dr. Jordan is is a marvelous man and uh, he always have a lot of great things to talk about, Uh, as you can hear, I'm Norwegian, my English isn't always, always that good, so but it is Jordan that is talking the most, so I hope you can bear with me and my English in this episode. I'm training my ass off to get my English better, <laughs> but in the meantime, I hope you can bear with me. So, enjoy this episode with Dr. Jordan B. Peterson. Today, I want to welcome uh, Dr. Jordan B. Peterson again. Welcome back, Professor. Thanks very much. Good to see you. Nice to talk to a Norwegian in the morning. <laughs> That's perfect to hear, Jordan. Uh, the last time we talked about reoccurring memories that are more than 18 months old. And we also talked about how important it is to challenge our comfort zone and ex- expand our map of the world. Uh, but we also talked about a little, a little about personality types the last time, uh, Jordan. But uh, I just saw uh, some of your YouTube videos about personalities. So this time, I really wanted to hear more about personalities. Because I believe that a lot of listeners, myself included, uh, is curious uh, what personality type we are. And uh, how does this impact our world and worldview, Jordan? Okay, well, so the first thing that we might want to do is explain a little bit about what personality is. And it is, it isn't just how you act. It's also how you see the world. And 
ever since the time of Immanuel Kant, uh, who wrote a critique of reason, people have known that you need a structure through which to view the world, like glasses or lenses. And it's a set of filters that helps you screen out what isn't relevant, but, but focus on what is relevant to you. And relevant means important for your survival, and perhaps for the sur survival of people around you. So relevance is is crucial is a crucial issue and different people see different things as relevant and you might you might understand that that's part of how we fit into different places in the world we everyone doesn't want to fit in the same place because it would get too crowded so we're dispersed among many potential places that we could inhabit that would allow us to survive and so psychologists have been examining the variability in personality, how we differ from one another, and have used very powerful statistical modeling techniques to analyze language based on the idea that we have encapsulated the fundamental dimensions of personality in language because we use language to describe each other and to communicate. And the upshot of all that is that over the last 30 years, Personality psychologists have established a consensus on human personality and have claimed that it varies in five dimensions, which is a lot of dimensions, right? The world only varies in four dimensions. <laughs> and so humans vary in five, which is a very large space. And each of those five can be further broken down into two. So we can start with the five. The first dimension is a dimension of variability and positive emotion. And so, you know, some people when you interact with them and talk with them, they're very gregarious and social and bubbly and enthusiastic and smiley and tell jokes and speak quickly and, and light up in a social environment and are assertive and, and dominate the social space. Those are extroverts. And extroverted people are fundamentally at home in the social world. Um, they don't, they're not necessarily warm and compassionate and intimate. They're, they're entertaining and and uh, and assertive and comical and excitable. They're fun. That's a good mm. term as well. They like to tell jokes. They like to host parties, and they find social interaction energizing. They make good salespeople. Uh, they, they like presenting in groups. They like to be the center of attention. That's extroversion, and that's associated with a low threshold for experiencing positive emotion. And positive emotion is the force that drives you forward out into the world, both in terms of exploration and socialization. And extroverts explore social environments. And they're happy people, bubbly, giggly, enthusiastic, mouthy, talkative. Introverts are people who I think are more at home in nature. They like it quiet. They're, they're not unhappy as in sad and anxious, but they're not, they're not overwhelmed with positive emotion. They're not particularly enthusiastic or assertive, and they tend to keep to themselves. They're tired out by social interactions. They find them tiring, and they have to go recover. And so it's not that easy for introverts and extroverts to – it's a continuum, right? But mm -hmm. it's not that easy for people on the ends of the continuum to understand each other because the extroverts – hate to be alone and the introverts are overwhelmed by people 
And so if you're an introvert who is in a relationship with an extrovert, then that's a fundamental difference in value that's hard to bridge. And it isn't just a matter, like I said, of, of opinion or action. It's, it's, a, it's, it's, it's a matter of perception and patterns of thinking and emotional response. It's like it permeates everything. It's very fundamental. Um, the second dimension is known as neuroticism. Uh, oh, I should say there's some there's some differences between men and women in extroversion. Okay. On average, they're the same, but men are more assertive, and women are more enthusiastic. Okay. The difference isn't huge, so you can find more assertive women and more more enthusiastic men, but on average. Those are reliable differences. Um, neuroticism is the is the proclivity to experience anxiety and emotional pain. And women are much higher in neuroticism than men, about about half a standard deviation. And what that means is that if you took two people at random out of the general population, and one was a man and one was a woman, and you assumed that the woman was more sensitive to negative emotion of, of the anxiety type and of the emotional pain type, let's say, you'd be correct 60% of the time. Wow. So it's not a huge difference at the middle of the distribution, but out at the ends, it makes a huge difference. So mm. if you took, if you take those people who are particularly resistant to negative emotion, they're almost all men. And if you take those who are particularly sensitive to negative emotion, they're almost all women, even though the centers of the distribution overlap substantially. And the negative emotions are basically sensitivity to threat and sensitivity to pain. And pain includes frustration, disappointment, grief, and the, the, and anxiety in, includes fear and, and more general anxiety. Boys and girls don't seem to be much different in negative emotion, but it, the differences kick in at puberty. Okay. And they stay stable for the rest of, of people's lives. It's also why women are more prone to depression and anxiety than men. Uh, men are more prone to antisocial personality and to drug and to alcoholism, criminality, uh, um, learning disabilities, attention deficit disorder, and that's, and those sorts of things. But women are more prone to depression and anxiety, and that's true cross-culturally. It's a very robust finding. Now, the reason that women experience more negative emotion isn't clear, but there's a number of possible candidates. I think the most reasonable is that women, once they hit puberty, are actually not, their nervous systems aren't wired up for them as individuals. They're wired up for them as the mothers of infants. And the world is a very dangerous place if you're the mother of an infant, mm. because an infant is so vulnerable. And so women seem particularly attuned to negative emotion because that makes them sensitive to the sorts of threats or 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 other challenges that might beset their dependent offspring. Women are also smaller than men. Hmm. So that puts them at a physical disadvantage. It makes it reasonable for them to be more sensitive to negative emotion. And they're also more sexually vulnerable. Because the negative consequences of sex for a woman can mean a completely life-altering transformation, whereas the negative consequences for men are attenuated. Mm. 
And so those are some of the reasons why women might be higher in negative emotion than men. But they're very reliable differences, and there's no evidence that it's a consequence of socialization. The third dimension, and I would say the one that's more most complex, is known as agreeableness. Um, agreeable, and women are more agreeable than men. That doesn't mean they're easier to get along with exactly because they're higher in negative emotion. But agreeable people are compassionate and polite. And compassion, and, and again, women are half a standard deviation more agreeable than men. And so that means, again, if you took a random man and a random woman out of the general population and you said that you picked the woman as the most agreeable of the two, you'd be right 60% of the time. But it also means that the most agreeable people are almost all women and the least agreeable people are almost all men. And this one really matters because if you go down, if you looked at the least agreeable person in 100, that person would almost always be male. And he would be massively disproportionately likely to be in prison. So if you think about agreeableness as it's agreeable, people are compliant and they want to please. And if they negotiate, they're very much likely to negotiate on behalf of other people rather than themselves. Interesting. Yes, it's part of the reason why women get paid less than men, because we know that agreeable people get paid less in the same jobs. And the reason for that is that they're not as good at negotiating for themselves as disagreeable people. Disagreeable people are harsh and blunt and direct and brusque and rough. And they'll tell you exactly what they think. And they don't, they don't shy away from the kind of conflict that would hurt other people's feelings. Whereas agreeable people do not like conflict and will do almost anything to avoid it. The best predictor of politically correct attitudes, as far as our research has been able to determine, is agreeableness. So um, people, modern people stress the importance of empathy and compassion as virtues above all else. But there are real downsides to agreeableness as well as advantages. And the downsides are that agreeable people get taken advantage of mm. and they they have a hard time being in positions where they're going to be disliked which is part of the reason that many women are not very happy in management positions because you have to do you have to be willing to tolerate being disliked if you're in a supervisory position and you often have to make decisions that are actually quite that generate a lot of interpersonal conflict mm. and so and these are also, there's no evidence that these traits are, trait differences between men and women are a consequence of socialization. In fact, all the evidence suggests the opposite because paradoxically enough, the biggest differences in personality between men and women in the world are in the Scandinavian countries. Okay. Where, they, where most attempts have been made to level out the playing field. It's maximized the differences between men and women rather than shrinking them. Why? Because you've removed environmental variability and all that's left is the genetic variability. Uh -huh. So what, what it means is that if you allow men and women to be whoever they could be, mm. because you're, you're eliminating the differences in the way that they're treated, the differences that remain biologically maximize. Mm. It's so not because they're allowed to 
to manifest themselves completely. And so that's why in, in the Scandinavian countries, for example, it's still 20 to 1 females to males in professions like nursing and 20 to 1 males to females in professions like engineering. Mm. And nursing is a caring profession, obviously, and so it attracts people who are agreeable and compassionate, whereas engineers aren't people focused at all. They're focused on things and gadgets, and so um, that's a much more male-oriented field of interest. Actually, the biggest difference there is between men and women is interest in people versus interest in things. Okay. So in general, women are more interested in people, and in general, more, men are more interested in things. Hmm. So, and, and that goes along, I think, with the male propensity to be incredibly tool-oriented. Hmm. It's very so, logical. <clears throat> but, but I've never thought about it. Yeah, well, it's, it's, it, these aren't easy things to get straight. It, it's taken a lot of, I would say, theory-free scientific research to establish this. I mean, no scientific research is entirely free of theory, but these models have been generated almost completely from pure statistical investigation. Hmm. So very little a priori theory. The theory has had to fill in as the empirical discoveries were made. The fourth dimension is conscientiousness. And conscientious people are orderly and industrious. And orderly people like to keep things in the boxes that they belong in. And this is a very important dimension of political belief. So orderly people are more likely to be conservative. And that's why they're concerned with borders. The orderly people like the borders between things to remain intact. And and that, that applies at the political level, but it also applies at every level of analysis right down to the linguistic So orderly people like the gender roles to remain stable. They like the they don't like food that of different sorts to be touching on their plate. They're not that fond of abstract art. They want things to stay in the damn boxes where they were put. And so and industrious people don't seem to be able to tolerate sitting around doing nothing. They they're motivated by duty Mm. and perhaps by shame and guilt. Now, we don't know exactly what motivates industrious people, but they're the people that are always working. Hmm. And and conscientiousness, which is industriousness and orderliness, is the best long-term predictor of life success outside of IQ. Interesting. And because conscientious people sacrifice the present for the future. Hmm. Right? They're, they're, they're not impulsive. They, they, they make plans and they stick to them. They save for the future. They're always doing what they should do instead of what they want to do. Is that and because of fear, Jordan? No. No. Fear loads on neuroticism. Okay. And it's, we're not clear. Like some of what seems to drive orderliness to some degree is sensitivity to disgust. Interesting. And that's really worth knowing because – one of the things that's very worth knowing about Hitler is that he was extremely high in orderliness by all appearances. He was very sensitive to disgust. And disgust is an emotion that protects you from contamination. Hmm. So it's part of what psychologists describe as the behavioral immune system. It keeps you away from contaminants. Now, 
I read a book by Adolf Hitler called Hitler's Table Talk, which was a collection of his spontaneous speeches at the dinner table collected between 1939 and 1942. And I read it at the same time that I was working on the relationship between orderly and orderliness and disgust. And I realized that Hitler's fundamental metaphor for the Aryan race was a body. The body was pure and uncontaminated. And, and, and he was attempting to protect that pure body from infiltration by contaminating agents. And for him, those were, those were anything of foreign origin, particularly Judaism. And so, yes, and so, see, see Hitler started out his purification processes with public health endeavors and also with attempts to beautify Germany. So one of his edicts, for example, was that the factories had to be cleaned up. And he, he, he required the factory owners literally to clean them, but also to plant flowers in front, but also to fumigate them with, with an insecticide known as Zyklon B. And Zyklon B was the gas that was used in the gas chambers. And so he started out by trying to get rid of the insects and the rats. And then he moved into the mental hospitals and started to euthanize people. And then that expanded upwards to include Jews and gypsies and everyone he regarded as of contaminating essence and impure blood. And so it was the disgust system gone mad. He bathed about four times a day. <laughs> and he was also a he was also a worshiper of willpower. And conscientious people are advocates of willpower. And obviously, there's some real utility in that, but the orderliness part of it can really go astray. Now, part of the reason for that is that in our evolutionary history, cross-racial contact has often been of exceptional danger. So, for example, when the Europeans went to North America, the Spaniards, they carried with them smallpox and measles and, and uh, chickenpox and a variety of infectious diseases, most of which the Europeans had evolved resistance to, with the exception of smallpox. And the Spanish contact with the, with the Indians killed 95% of the Indians. They all died. By the time the Europeans came to North America, 100, 100 years later, roughly speaking, there, the, entire, the entire continent had been depopulated. The Indians didn't even have enough people to get their crops off anymore. Oh, and that was all a consequence of encountering the Europeans and, and the pathogens they had generated in their cramped and filthy cities. Hmm. So there are, there are reasons for the existence of this behavioral immune system because the foreigner, from a biological perspective, can be the, the source of terrible contaminants. And that's true both physiologically and intellectually. Because making contact with a foreign civilization can bring ideas into your into your own society that will destroy it completely. Now, of course, the flip side of that is that the foreigner and the unknown and, and the stranger can be the bearer of great gifts. And so the question is whether trading or 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 isolation is the best strategy. And the answer to that is it depends. 
And that's why there's an eternal debate between liberals and conservatives, for example, because the liberals are low in orderliness and high in the fifth trait, openness. Openness is the, the creativity trait. And liberals are high in openness and low in conscientiousness, especially orderliness. And so they want the borders to be open between everything. Mm. They don't want there to be defined roles. They don't want there to be defined genders. They, they don't want there to be defined countries. And the reason for that is that they see tremendous advantage in, in information flow between categorical structures. And they're correct because you, if you break down the barriers between categories, you can produce a tremendous revitalization of information and an inflow of information. But the danger is that it can flood you completely and demolish you. And so the liberals and the conservatives are always arguing about how open the borders should be. The, the conserv real conservatives say, close the borders. It's too dangerous. Batten down the hatches, build the walls higher, and, and protect what you have. And the liberals say, wait a minute, wait a minute, it'll get a bit stifling in there. It'll get a bit static. We'll, we'll all, we, without change, we'll all die. You need to open the doors and let some new things in so that we can breathe again and so that new ideas can flourish. And so politics is the eternal debate between those two positions. So those are the five dimensions of variability, extroversion, neuroticism, agreeableness, conscientiousness, and openness. Mm. And they're, they're very fundamental and they're very important and they're very biologically rooted. And part of the reason that you need to talk to people is so that you can talk to people who have different temperaments than you have so that you can establish some consensus and figure out how to live together. Yeah, are, we, are we born uh, this way, uh, Jordan? Yes, you, you really are. Like the, Some of the best experiments that have been done about that were done by initially by a professor at Harvard named Jerome Kagan, who was looking at inhibited children. And uh, he didn't precisely use a big five model, but it doesn't matter because his research is, is um, he was probably looking at introverted children who were also high in neuroticism. But he showed that at as early as six months, they were much more reactive to unexpected and threatening stimuli. Their startle reflexes were higher. They were more likely to become irritated, more likely to cry, more likely to shrink away from strangers. Mm. Now, what he also established, however, and this is very much worth knowing, is that if you had a child who was relatively inhibited, you could make them even more inhibited by overprotecting them. And you could decrease the degree to which they were inhibited by encouraging them to go out and explore and to and to as as and to expand their territorial horizons. So with inhibited children, you encourage them like if you take an inhibited child, so one that's high in neuroticism, say out to a playground and there's a bunch of children there the the child will cling to your legs. Now, what you need to do, whereas an extroverted child is. You put them on the ground in the playground, and even before their legs hit the ground, they're like a puppy <laughs> over the water. The legs will already be moving. They'll just sit right out to the, to the kids. But the inhibited kids will do two things, is they'll hang around your legs and kind of look at the, at the other kids, longingly even. But it takes them a while to warm up, and they might cling to your legs and, and cry and even ask to be taken home. That's a bad idea. Okay. You want to sit there with them and let them – accustom themselves to the new environment and then 
gently encourage them to go off and play. Tell them that they can come back when they need to, but that they have to go out and make contact with the kids. So they will go out and explore and socialize, but it takes them longer to warm up. So you have to be patient with that. But it's a big mistake to bring them home having failed at their social interaction because all that does is make them more inhibited. You know, it's just like people do with puppies. Mm. You have to socialize a puppy. Mm. When, when it's under six months, you have to take it out and get it to play with other dogs and, and bang it around in the world a bunch. Mm. And some, some puppies are very timid and it takes more care and effort to socialize them. And some are gregarious and they're more impulsive and likely to cause trouble too because like extroverted children, for example, tend to be more impulsive. Mm. Uh, but you can encourage inhibited people. And, you know, if you're an adult and you're introverted and anxious, you can do the same thing. You, mm. you have to put yourself out in social circumstances where you're somewhat ill at ease and pay very close attention to the people around you because that's sort of the way out of your introverted isolation hmm. and you can develop your social skills and become better at socializing although it's hmm. very hard to really move your introversion on a permanent basis you know hmm. it's 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 quite deeply ingrained temperamentally uh, and you need a lot of accomplishment i presume so, sorry say that you, again? You, you need a lot of accomplishment when you're yes well, yes basically what happens in some sense is that you're granted your temperament like a set of talents hmm. and they're yours to use. And then you have to use effort to develop the talents on the other side. Hmm. So for example, a disagreeable person has to learn how to be compassionate, but a compassionate person has to learn how to be tough. And it's hard for both of them because hmm. it, it, they're not equipped to do that by nature. It's something they have to learn through practice and discipline, but it can be done. I mean, a huge part of psychotherapy actually involves taking agreeable people, roughly speaking, hmm. and teaching them how to be more assertive and to stand up for themselves. It's almost as common a reason for psychotherapeutic treatment as is anxiety or, or depression. Uh, what are the strategies that they use then uh, to become more disagreeable, Jordan? Well, one of them is, first of all, to... to to uh, to lay out the negative consequences of avoiding conflict because one of the problems with avoiding conflict in the short term is that you don't solve medium to long term problems so for example maybe you're married and your partner is more disagreeable than you and and therefore somewhat difficult to negotiate with you're going to have to think very carefully through what it is that you want and why hmm. And then figure out how to articulate that and then develop a strategy for for putting forward your fight and holding your ground hmm. and also come to realize very carefully what the consequences are of not engaging in the conflict. Hmm. Because generally the consequences are that you end up subordinated and that there's much more conflict and hardship in the future. Hmm. So partly what I do with really agreeable people is to convince them to tell their truths even though that may because they're basically willing to sacrifice themselves on a gen, general level especially in the moment for the for the for the instantaneous well-being and comfort of the people around them mm. and again that i think that goes back to infant care strategy say because 
what you want to do with a distressed infant, especially one under nine months old, is calm it down. And you don't want conflict around an infant at all. Hmm. And you have to be there to respond to his or her momentary needs. But as a strategy for dealing with adults, it's, it's, it, it's not optimal, hmm. especially disagreeable, tough-minded adults who aren't who are going to do things their way and mm. and and will oppose that on other people uh, agreeable people jordan are they driven by the fear not being not being liked um i i wouldn't say again that it's precisely fear it's it's not it's not an easy emotion to identify okay they certainly don't they find conflict deeply disturbing they think it's morally wrong i suppose that's another way of 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 looking at it but but an agreeable person, agreeable people are nice people. Hmm. They just want everyone to get along. They just don't understand why everybody couldn't care for each other and, okay. and, and, and be compassionate. Hmm. And, but what they don't understand is that being nice is not sufficient to get you through the world hmm. because there are things about which you gen genuinely have to have conflict. Hmm. And so... Uh, I think a fair, a fair bit of the rise of political correctness on campus is, in fact, because the, the campuses have become, um, some in some disciplines, dominated almost entirely by women, hmm. okay. and women are are more likely to be to hold the sorts of political views that facilitate that would produce the kinds of doctrines that are emerging out of the politically correct end of the political distribution. Yeah, but uh, what do you think is the reason that a lot of people are very afraid of not being liked? Well, I mean, there's good reasons for that. I mean, if you're not liked by people, they can gang up on you and kill you. <laughs> True. I mean, they can isolate you. They can, I mean, there's like, and conflict, you know, when, when conflict between two men escalate, like it can easily end up in physical violence. That's a terrible endpoint for a woman if she's dealing with a man, because women lack the upper body strength of men. And so men are way more destructive in their use of aggression than women. I mean, more women attack their husbands than, than men attack their wives by quite a substantial margin. What? So if you look just, oh yes, if you look at just low level aggression, women are far more, aggr more aggressive towards their husbands. But it's partly because both the husband and the wife know that low level physical aggression directed from a woman to a man is unlikely to produce any genuinely harmful consequences. Mm. Whereas if you get especially a large man seriously angry and he hits you even once, mm. I mean, Definitely. that can kill you. Mm. So there are real reasons to keep the conflict to a minimum. And it's not easy for people to engage in difficult conversations about, about, things they truly disagree about it can easily escalate into anger and then from anger into into physical aggression or even the threat of physical aggression which can be quite intimidating but a lot of people are so afraid of not people liking them that they are doing uh, maybe doing actions that uh, they wouldn't do else uh, so yeah. what can people do that are too afraid of not being liked well, they, they need to think through whether or not there are things that are more important than being liked. Like telling the truth, I think, is a, a cardinal issue. And a lot of the people that I deal with who are very agreeable, who are also highly conscientious, have a very 
tight sense of alliance with the truth, like they regard it as their duty to speak truthfully, and but they're often afraid to speak truthfully about what they want because that would produce conflict, or that's how they see it. True. So I usually convince them to say that they have a moral obligation to say what they believe to be true, even if it will cause conflict. Mm. Now, that doesn't mean you should be careless about it. Mm. Yeah, different personality types, they see the world differently. And I presume that if you see your world differently, uh, regards of the personality type, you also uh, see a situation differently. For example, when I'm talking to you now, Jordan, I presume that the different personality types uh, are going to think different about the conversation. Oh, they may even hear different things about the conversation. Yeah, some some elements of it will stand out for them and other elements will recede. And and what will happen is that they'll they'll tend to focus in more on the information that's either very relevant to them in terms of their personality type or that or that really emerges as an obstacle. So they might violently disagree with something because it 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 stands in counterposition to their temperamental value structure uh, can you say a little uh, can you say a little about the how the different personality types inter see the world and as the example in this conversation well i would say with agreeable people for example and you see this very clearly in the in the domain of political correctness if if you think about agreeableness as part of the maternal dimension, which which it is, then it's very easy for people who are high in, let's call it maternality, and, and some of those can be male, by the way, because men are quite maternal as far as, uh, as far as mammalian, as far as ma- mammals are concerned, as far as other animals are concerned, for that matter, because human males engage in a tremendous amount of childcare, which is certainly not the case for animals like like most of the large carnivores, for example, don't en- the males don't engage in childcare at all or in infant care. They're, in fact, they're often to, they're likely to prey on the on the young, and so they're chased away. They stay away. Um, agreeable people will view the world fundamentally through that maternal lens. It's easy for them to see to divide up the social world into victimized quasi-infants and and rapacious predators. And and that metaphor permeates the politically direct, correct discussion. There's the victimized groups who can do no wrong, which is precisely the right attitude to take towards an infant who's younger than nine months. And then there's the rapacious predators who are the absolute incarnation of evil, which is also the right attitude to take towards anything that is trying to prey on your infant. But as a basis for civilized political discourse, it's a little bit on the low resolution side. And it's very, very dangerous if you happen to be thrown into the category of a rapacious predator. So because there's there's no quarter given to you if you're in that category. It's it's you should be suppressed eliminated perhaps but certainly suppressed mm. because you're nothing but a danger now like i'm exaggerating obviously because most political discussion is not unidimensional and most people aren't at the extreme ends of the temperamental continuum but that's the sort of danger that lurks behind that kind of viewpoint mm. and one of the things that's extraordinarily common comical in my estimation is that the 
the radical feminist activist types who promote the agreeable politically correct doctrine believe that there's no differences between the sexes and yet they act out their fundamental maternality with every political word they utter. It's, it's a remarkable spectacle. One question that uh, I'm extremely curious about after explaining different personality types is that uh, I presume that uh, the different personality types also ask themselves different questions. Uh, so if they're uh, coming into a situation where there are uh, a lot of people, an extrovert will see possibilities, an introvert will see, oh, this is obstacles. But do do we know what kind of questions they ask themselves in different situations based on different personality types? Sure, sure, sure. So when an agreeable person enters a room, they think, how can I make people comfortable and welcome? And is there... Uh, a place in here where I can increase intimacy. So that's what they're concerned about. Mm. A disagreeable person will see the place, the, the room more as a place of potential competition. And that's not all negative because, you know, I mean, if you think about it, you get together a group of fairly rough guys to play sports or something, you know, it's not like, They don't like being together, but it's continually competitive. They're always trying to take each other down a peg, and it's continual dominance maneuvering. And it can be done humorously and fine, but it's still it's jostling with elbows, you know. So they see it as a as a place of competition and a place to hold their own territory. And then a conscientious person will see pretty much any situation as a, a place where they should find out what their duty is and follow it, and maybe. Also bring order to it if it's a disorderly place to impose order on it. Hmm. And an open person will look for creative possibility, certainly in conversation, because the creative person, the open person, will attempt to direct the conversation towards abstract ideas and, and their exploration or the discussion of literature and art and other aesthetic concerns. So uh, what and an introvert yeah. will try to find a corner to hide in with some other person they can they can maybe talk to one on one uh, what uh, traits do we see amongst uh, creative people and entrepreneurs yeah it's openness high in openness, openness? That's, that's fundamental predictor of entrepreneurial and creative ability yes okay yes uh, what do that's we why, see? That's, yeah. that's interesting too because it also explains why liberals and conservatives need each other Okay. Why? See, because while the liberals come up with the creative ideas, including those that start new companies, but the conservatives run them. <laughs> run the companies. Not true. So, so there, you can't. The, the liberals, as soon as a very open person, especially one who's low in conscientiousness, has fleshed out an idea or maybe even sketched out an idea, they don't want to bother with the details of implementation. They're off to another idea. Hmm. Well, but if the idea is going to be implemented, someone who's more orderly and industrious has to come up and pick up the idea and differentiate it and turn it into an algorithm and implement it into the world. Mm. Now, the problem with the conservative types is that once the idea has had its day and dies, they can't think up another one to replace it. So then they have to call on a, the hated liberal to come up and shake things up a bit and generate something new. Mm. So... It's a continual dynamic. That's, for example, say you are an introvert. 
Uh, can you change that ability into being an extrovert? It's hard. It's it's hard. You can develop the skills that are on the other side of the spectrum. Mm. And if you're le- if you're low in openness, for example, and you want to be more creative, the best thing to do is to read. To read? Okay. Sure. And especially things that you're not inclined to agree with. But you're going to find that hard, especially if you're conscientious, because it's easy to think of reading as a waste of time. And and if you're not interested in it, you know, conscientious parents will also often chase their kids away from books. You shouldn't be just sitting there wasting time. You should be doing something productive. Because <laughs> true. Yeah, it looks like inactivity. Mm, true. So um, you can practice the skills that are associated with the opposite of your temperament on each dimension, but it's it it requires conscious effort. It's a really good idea because it like if you think about each trait dimension as a set of tools, mm. you might want to broaden your you will broaden and expand your toolkit. Mm. Generally speaking, I would say the best pathway through life is to find a place that you're that suits your temperament. Mm. So introverted salespeople have have a less than optimal life. Mm. You know, and agreeable people who are ca- called on to continually engage in conflict and to make decisions that will hurt other people's feelings, you know, they suffer for it. Um they they suffer for it it hurts their feelings it makes them full of sorrow hmm. and so and conscientious people can't tolerate lack of activity if if they're unemployed through reasons that aren't their own fault say they'll take themselves apart because they feel so bad about it so part of what you want to do in life is figure out what your temperament is and then figure out what positions in society would suit you hmm. If you're a really radical liberal type, you need to go into the creative, into a creative profession. Hmm. So, it and was, if you're conservative, then you know law is a good profession, or banking, or accounting, or any of the more tradition-bound enterprises. What should the traits be for an interviewer? Well, I would say the fundamental trait should be the ability to pay attention and listen, and you can definitely learn that. Hmm. Um, it's probably easier for an interviewer to be an extrovert. Okay. And it's an interviewer, generally speaking, I would say also has to be open in, in the trait sense, because what you want to have happen when you're interviewing someone is when they say something, it should spark off a set of ideas within you that you can u- then use as exploratory tools to continue the conversation. Hmm. But, you know, you can make contact with people with with any of the trait tools in some sense i mean an agreeable person might look for ways that the conversation could become more intimate and talk about relationships and that sort of thing and a conscientious person might appeal to shared sense of duty and uh, an extroverted person will tell you jokes interesting and and make you laugh and be entertaining interesting so the different temperaments actually leads to conversations Yes, well, and they direct conversations as well. Yeah. It's often difficult to speak to someone who's very different different from you temperamentally because it's hard for you to adopt their frame of reference. Mm. So, you know, like a classical, a high, someone who's extremely suited for the military, for example, who would be low in openness and very high in conscientiousness, especially orderliness, has a real hard time talking to a extremely liberal artist. Mm. 
<laughs> That's because like they just <laughs> they're in different worlds mm. and they really are in different worlds mm. now that kind of dialogue can be particularly fruitful because the the gap in worldview is so great that the information content in the exchange can be extraordinarily high mm. but it's very challenging to bridge a gap of that sort no i'm a, a curious on my own behalf jordan because uh... I'm extremely curious. I have to learn something every day. If I don't yeah. learn something, I'm uh, yeah, I'm going uh, going wild. I need to learn something every day. And uh, what kind of a trait is that? That's openness. Openness? Oh, absolutely. Okay. You're an information forager. You even use so you know how squirrels forage for nuts? <laughs> yes. You forage for information. Interesting. <laughs> it's, even the same, it's even the same circuitry. Okay, explain. Yeah, the seeking circuit, and that was outlined quite nicely by a neuroscientist named Jak Panksepp, who wrote a book called Affective Neuroscience, which is an absolutely great book. It's in my list of great books on my website. Um, you think about how it evolved. So, okay, squirrels go around and forage for nuts, but then they also have to know where the nuts are. That's information. True. And so the circuit that, that helped the squirrel go out and forage for nuts is the same circuit that the squirrel uses to 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 acquire and represent the information about where the nuts are well when you're out there learning new things basically what you're doing is you're continually expanding your armament of search strategies for nuts <laughs> never thought about my, about myself as a squirrel but okay <laughs> well you know we even say you can all squirrel that away for later use. <laughs> true yeah, yeah. True. <laughs> but see human beings that's that's exactly what's happened to us is that most animals directly they subordinate the search for information to the search for food hmm. we've done the reverse is we figured out oh well it's good to know where the food is oh it's just good to know things because <laughs> it's like it's like ma knowing things is like magical food hmm. yeah what is your temperament jordan um i'm very very open open yeah you know i'm i always i'm always learning new things and absolutely obsessed by by ideas yeah so not and, knowledge but ideas ideas yeah and well and, and just the expansion of knowledge in general and i'm 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 quite extroverted hmm. so i'm a certain assertive person which is why i talk too much and i'm quite enthusiastic um i'm probably I'm reasonably high in neuroticism, so I okay. experience a fair bit of, of negative emotion. Ah. Um, especially, you can break neuroticism into withdrawal and volatility. And withdrawal, people who are high in withdrawal tend to avoid situations, new situations or threatening situations. I don't avoid new situations and so on, but neurotic people can also be volatile and touchy and and. When I'm my mood varies quite a lot, and and I can be quite volatile, and and um, so, and then agreeable. I'm more agreeable than disagreeable, hmm. which I don't regard as a as a virtue. Uh, it's something I struggle against continually because it it's better to be forthright than 
to be too concerned about whether or not people like you. But mm. it's been good for me because I'm a clinical psychologist and it's necessary for me to care for people. So it also has its its positive elements. Uh, do, I, <clears throat> do you need a do you need a great deal of balance in your life, Jordan? Well, that's a good question. I I would say to some degree no because I work best if I'm working flat out all the time. Like I always I only seem to have two speeds. Really. <laughs> like I'm like a two-speed transmission. Okay. <laughs> one one speed is neutral and the other gear is like fifth gear. And so once I'm up in fifth gear I like to stay there. But are you, are you becoming neurotic when you're in the fifth gear for a long time? Well, I can wear myself out, but no, I think I think the reverse. I think that the busier I stay, the more occupied I stay, the more stable I am. Actually, I mean, the risk is that the risk is of exhaustion, but mm. um, I also seem to be fairly resilient to to um, activity induced exhaustion. So. So you can handle a great deal of stress then? Yeah, it's it's kind of strange because I, I am quite sensitive to well I my there's a it's complicated my situation because um I have a my family has a history of severe depression and that complicates things. It complicates even analysis of my own temperament because um that depression which looks like it might be an immunological condition. We've been trying to sort it out for a very long period of time. Looks like it might be an immunological condition. Okay. But that, yeah, like, yes. And so I've been trying to sort that out with my daughter mostly because she has a variety of immunological disorders that, that are very complex. So it, it complicates my own temperamental analysis because that the immunological problems seem to produce psychological side effects i guess that would be the right way to think about it so it isn't exactly obvious but i'm also very very industrious i want to work all the time do you think uh, the, that is actually helping you away from the depression that you're also occupied and focused on something uh, it's certainly the case that if i if i do slip into a period of depression that my work routines are are provide the structure that buffers against it. Absolutely. Mm. And I mean, what I've learned over the years is that when that happens, which seems rather random, and I think that's part of the immunological element, I, I, I have to stick to my work because I can maintain my daily routines. That way things don't get worse either. Mm. I mean, you know, if you have a reasonably complicated life or <laughs> if you have a life at all, you can't let your daily routines fall apart because mm. then everything gets worse. Mm. So... And if you're in a period of time where you're overwhelmed with negative emotions, your your routine is one of the things that really stabilizes you. Mm. Yeah, for sure. And uh, I believe that uh, where your focus is going, the, the, that is where you're getting the results. So if you're letting the depression and the faults of depression uh, taking control, the focus is going just one way, and that's into depression. So. Do you think that is the reason that we need this uh, if you're having or are predisposed to yeah. depression? Do you think that is the reason that we need to keep going as usual and not going into bed and sleeping for hours and days? Yes, well, it, well, you know, one of the things that you do do if you're trying to treat people with depression is to help them structure their days. Mm. It's actually one of the most, if you have a family member that's depressed, 
one of the most useful things you can do is each night sit down with them and plan the next day in, in a, at a micro level, like yeah. hour by hour, and say, you're not going to feel like doing any of this tomorrow. Hmm. You're going to think it's stupid and pointless and that you're useless and that there's no way you can do it. Ignore all that and do it stupidly. Do it badly, hmm. but stick to it. Stick hmm. to it. And if you if you if if you fall off the schedule, then get back on it. Hmm. Do it day after day, and that'll often well that will certainly at least keep the depression from tumbling down too far, and can hmm. often provide the sort of kickstart that can help a person recover. Hmm. And it's nice to do that the evening before because then the person gets to go to sleep surrounded by some sense of stability and purpose. Hmm. which is often absent when someone becomes seriously depressed. Hmm. You know, and the person might say, maybe you schedule in, uh, well, at 10 o'clock you can read for an hour. And the person will say, I can't read at all anymore. And you say, well, if you can't read for an hour, read for two minutes. Hmm. Well, And if you can't read a complex book, read a book for kids. Hmm. You know, find, find a level at which you can start picking up the pieces again and putting hmm. things together. And get, the, and get the feeling of accomplishment again. Yes, exactly. Well, and that also gets the positive emotion systems working. Because what happens in depression is that the system that governs extroversion, the positive emotion systems, shuts off. Okay. And the system that governs neuroticism, the negative emotion systems, crank up. And so not only do you get more anxious and sad and more sad and more frustrated and, and more disappointed and all of that, mm. But you also lose the ability to experience pleasure. Those aren't the same thing because they're like there's a separate system for negative emotion and positive emotion. Uh, is depression a uh, kind of a state, uh, Jordan? Well, it's 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 like a it's like a trap that you can fall into. So imagine a lot of conditions that we describe as mental illnesses are actually they're more like They're more like traps that you can wander into. So, well, so imagine this. Imagine that you're, you start to feel badly mm. about yourself and your energy declines. So you're starting to get depressed. Well, and that means that you're a little more irritable with people. And so they respond a little more negatively to you. And you watch, you see that, and that makes you feel even worse about yourself. Oh, so and so that makes you a little more irritable, and then you start mm. withdrawing from social contact. Mm. And you become more isolated. Then you have more time to brew. Then your energy levels fall. Mm. Then you don't do quite as well at work. Mm. And you attract a negative comment. That knocks down your self-esteem. So you see, these it's things a start... It's a spy, it's a, mm. That's right, it's a causal loop. Mm. And the same thing happens with a lot of pathological... Uh, endpoints that people find themselves in like with alcoholism mm. a real tipping point in the process by which people become alcoholic is that moment they discover that having a drink can cure a hangover the magic pill yes well and then what's happened is that the cure and the disease are the same thing mm. and you spiral very rapidly and then mm. all your friends are drinkers and then everywhere you go for your social life revolves around alcohol mm. And so that then to cut back on your drinking means that you have to leave your friends and all of your social life behind. Mm. 
And so these are traps. They're, they're spirals and circles, vicious circles, mm. and each piece of it reinforces the other. Uh, but I'm curious about one thing, Jordan, uh, because if I uh, understand this correctly, uh, when you're when you're seeing that you're becoming depressed, you see that your thoughts are becoming becoming darker, and we see that uh, people are becoming more negative to your uh, to your expressions. Yeah, is it then possible to change by your state by, for example, going for uh, exercise or uh, changing your state by jumping and making all the noises you can or is is it possible to change this the state by changing your physiology when you sure. see that you are getting depressed and getting dark thoughts sure well a lot of the a lot of the things that you can do to to push back on depression are actually pretty directly physical mm. so for example the first thing i do with my clients who are depressed is try to regulate their sleep again because Depression is in part a disorder of circadian rhythms. It's a pain disorder and a disorder of circadian rhythm. Okay, so the, the negative emotion that's associated with depression is very much like pain. And in fact, antidepressants are effective medications for long-term chronic pain, which your viewers might or your listeners might be interested in if they have pain conditions. Hmm. One of the best long-term management strategies is to use an antidepressant. Okay. So, Yeah, and it's really worth knowing, you know. So if you have someone who's in chronic pain, man, it's like if they haven't tried antidepressants, then that's a really useful thing to attempt. Um, and they're not addictive. You know, opiates can be very addictive mm. and sedating as well. And antidepressants are also not sedating. So, but the first thing you want to do is look at sleep. Now, if you're waking up too much at night mm. and worrying, the first thing to do is go to bed later. Now, okay, no later? That out. Yeah, well, because people think, oh, my sleep is disrupted. I need to go to bed earlier and catch uh, up. Uh, But all that means is that they have a, they spend a longer time going to sleep, tossing and turning and worrying. And then because they're sleeping too much, they're much more likely to wake up while they sleep ah, true. and worry. So one of the things you want to do is, so for example, maybe you're accustomed to going to bed at 10 and getting up at, at 8. And you're waking up two or three times during the night. Go to bed at midnight. Hmm. See what happens. If that doesn't work, go to bed at one. <laughs> like eventually, you'll 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 shorten your sleep cycle enough so that you won't wake up, and that's better because you get a better night's sleep that way. The other thing you should do is like if your sleep schedule is erratic, and this is often the case for young people, especially students who don't have a fixed schedule. If you're depressed, is pick a time in the morning to wake up and get up mm. at that time every day. Mm. Now it. You know, it doesn't have to be at seven o'clock in the morning. It could be eleven o'clock in the morning, mm. but it needs to be stable mm. because the depression can sometimes be a consequence of erratic sleeping and eating habits. Mm. But it certainly exacerbates them. And then make sure you eat breakfast mm. and not carbohydrate-heavy breakfast, but a protein and fat-heavy breakfast. And mm. eat a lot. And it doesn't matter if you're hungry. Mm. It's irrelevant because if you are depressed or anxious you're you're already your emergency preparedness circuitry is already on high alert hmm. and so if you fast all night which you do when you're sleeping and then you stress yourself in the morning before you've had a meal you'll dysregulate your stress response systems and you can't get them back under control until you sleep again so does that mean that your um, uh, amygdala is more active when you are depressed 
that's that's a good way of thinking about it. Yes, is that and but it's, it's more than the amygdala. It's a whole array of of deep brain structures. Okay. But but all of the systems that prepare you for emergency action are on alert when you're depressed. At least it, especially in the initial stages of depression. I mean, you can get exhausted at some point, and that's a whole different story. But mm. yes, you're in emergency preparation mode. And so you need to eat breakfast and a big breakfast. Hmm. And anxious people too, you'll find if you're anxious, first thing to do if you find that you're chronically anxious or if you're anxious during the day is when you notice you're anxious or irritable, eat something. Hmm. Because the blood People sugar. often do this anyways. They think about it as comfort food. But hmm. really what's happening is that their blood sugar is low. Hmm. And so you should eat something, but it should be protein or Fat, not mm. not not an easy carbohydrate because that'll just dysregulate your blood sugar in half an hour. Or so. mm. But what you and you need to get people around you to watch you. So if you're irritable and anxious, mm. eat something, mm. and then get the people around you to tell you if you're better in ten or fifteen minutes. Mm. You might be able to feel it, but they'll notice for sure. Mm. Uh, is that because when we're getting uh, lower blood sugar, the cortisol is getting higher? Well, and then we're becoming more anxious. Or? Yes, well. Those things spiral. When your cortisol levels go up, you produce insulin mm. because cortisol is an activating hormone. Mm. And so the insulin is produced so that you can break down sugar and produce energy. Mm. But if you're overstressed, they'll overproduce insulin. It'll take all the sugar out of your blood. Oh. And then and then you're in real trouble. Then, then you're irritable as hell. And that's partly because, you know, if you're hungry, mm. which is... One indication is that your blood sugar is low. You need to go kill something so you can eat it. <laughs> true. You know, yeah. <laughs> true. And hopefully it's, you know, you're not taking that out on your wife. <laughs> but you probably will. Mm. You know, like another thing I would recommend is never have an important discussion with someone before they eat. Mm. Ah, for sure. You, you have really important things to discuss with your family members or business members and mm. business people. Anything like that is mm. like feed them something first. Mm. Here's a funny statistic, and I don't remember the precise numbers, but I, I'll get it close. This is for all the criminals out there who are listening to the podcast. <laughs> If you're going to go before a judge and ask for parole, you're twice as likely to get it after lunch as before lunch. Yeah. I read the same article. Yes, well, yeah. it's an amazing <laughs> yeah. thing. It. Yes, it Whether or not you get parole... Whether or not someone gets parole depends on whether they talk to a hungry <laughs> judge. Ah, it's so true. It's scary. It's scary <laughs> for criminals. Ah. <laughs> yes, yes. Mm. Well, it, it's scary to understand how those basic physiological processes have such a huge impact on mm. us. Uh, I talked to Professor Russell Foster from Oxford here earlier about uh, his uh, professor in circadian rhythms. Uh-huh. Uh and uh, he talked about uh, the internal clock and how uh, it uh, how important it is to have the same uh, sleep schedule because yeah. if we if it's irregular uh, yeah. then we're getting a problem with uh, the internal clock starting to regulate itself all the time. Absolutely. And if you're if you're prone to see if you have weaker circadian rhythms that might be one of the things that makes you prone to depression. Uh -huh. So for example Seasonal affective disorder, mm. you know, well, that's a circadian rhythm disorder. Mm. It's like jet lag. True. What ends up happening if you have seasonal affective disorder is in some sense that you're awake when you should be asleep. Mm. And 
your brain does a lot of negative information processing when you're asleep. Hmm. Well, you don't want to be awake for that. No, not at all. And you can tell because you wake up at three in the morning and worry about things like mad. Hmm. Yeah, well, you should be asleep for that. (laughs) For sure. You want to be asleep. Well, you said something in uh, in one of your YouTube videos about it's uh, advantage to have have an high IQ in the modern world. Can you elaborate on that one, uh, Jordan? Well, IQ is a very misunderstood phenomena, and, and people even debate about its existence, which is absolutely preposterous. It's the most well-established phenomena in the social sciences by a large, by a by a by a by a, by a tremendous degree. Hmm. It's the most powerful predictor that social scientists have ever discovered. And that's partly why they're afraid of it, because something that powerful is frightening. Mm. But really, here, here's how you estimate someone's IQ. It's, it's very straightforward. Okay. So imagine that you had a, imagine that you went onto the internet and you gathered 10,000 questions that people could answer. It doesn't matter what they're about. It could be mathematical patterns, it could be general knowledge, it could be vocabulary, it could be, um, um, well, that, that, that's, a good, that's a good beginning. Hmm. Okay, so now you have 10,000 questions that you've gathered. Then imagine that you took a random subset of 100 of those questions, and you gave all of them to 1,000 people. And then you assigned each of the people a score based on how many of the questions they got correct. That's IQ. Simple as that. And you could correct it for age because mm. that's technically IQ is, is, is that ability corrected for age because the older people for a variety of reasons. But, but it's very – and the reason that it's such a good predictor of success in life is because life's success is dependent on answering questions. Yeah, true. So now, you know, that's obviously a bit of an oversimplification mm. because – Life success also depends on formulating the proper questions. Ah, my next question. Next question, <laughs> and that is, uh, uh, I believe, or, or everything, uh, uh, everything we know is that uh, the answer uh, depends on the question. Yes. Uh, so, asking yourself or others the correct question that I wanted to talk to you about, Jordan. Because yes, I, I believe that, that I believe that a lot of people are not asking the right questions. Yes, well, that that's often because formulating the question is actually the most difficult part of solving a problem. Mm. Partly, you know, if you're having an argument with someone that you love, a huge part of the argument is, well, just exactly what are we arguing about? Mm. <laughs> yeah, true. Are we arguing about everything terrible that's happened in our relationship for the last twenty years. You know, that's a hole that people can go down. It's really bad if that's the hole you go down every time you have something to discuss. Mm. So partly the strategy for arguing with an intimate partner is let's make this argument about the least amount that it can be and still be useful instead mm. of let's rehash every bloody thing that's wrong with the relationship. You know, mm. Because if that's the specter that arises every time you have a problem, you'll never confront any problems. Mm. So, and there are times for deeper conversations about the structure of the relationship as a whole, but every time there's a dispute isn't 
the time to have that conversation, especially if people are also, are also hungry and tired and it's like four in the morning and they've mm. both been drinking. Like, <laughs> <laughs> also very true. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But uh, if I remember correctly, Jordan, uh, you said something about that uh, in one of your lectures, uh, that we can see uh, that it can be one fact, but we can see the same fact in five different ways. Yeah, well, it's generally because it's very rare that the situations that we encounter are homogenous or unitary. Mm. And so imagine that you're in a job and you, you kind of like it, but it has some disadvantages. And now you get the opportunity to have a promotion and the promotion offers you 10% more salary, but more work and some uncertainty. Well, that's not a fact. That's a set of facts. Mm. And it's a set of facts that you can almost infinitely decompose. And most of the things that we face in life aren't a fact. They're a set of facts that can be infinitely decomposed. Mm. And so because of that, you can view that set of facts in a very large number of ways. So then, and that can be determined in part by your mood. So imagine your mood is fluctuating. And so you have this promotion that's ambiguous. And when you're feeling good, you think it's a great idea. And when you're feeling <laughs> bad, you think it's not so good. Yeah. So you see there's an interaction there between positive and negative emotional states. Mm. And then there's, then there's the field of facts that the opportunity presents. And you're trying to sort you're trying to observe that field of facts to pick out what's most particularly relevant. Mm. Very, very complicated problem. And m most of the things that we see in our life are, are complicated sets of facts. Like when you view another person, mm. I mean, a person is a whole bucket of snakes. You never know. <laughs> you never know which way they're going to go. Not true. <laughs> so, you know, so if you think logically and scientifically, you say, a thing is a thing, mm. and it's not another thing, and it's certainly not an opposite thing. But when, when you're dealing in the world, like, for example, with social situations or other people, it's like a thing is a thing and a bunch of other things, and it's opposite all at the same time. Mm. And that makes it very difficult to sort things out and navigate through them. But High it, IQ mm. makes you faster at doing that. Oh, so you can make decisions faster with a higher IQ? Yes. Okay. Yes, and you can consider more variables simultaneously too. Uh, does it mean that uh, if we are going to make some uh, important decisions, we should be in a neutral feeling? You should probably be in a in a in a. You should probably consider the important situation, assuming a number of different different emotional states. Okay. No, the problem with being really positive is it makes you impulsive. All you'll see are good things. Hmm. And when all you see are good things, then you act to get them as fast as possible. Hmm. Alcohol tends to do that to people, especially if they have a positive response to it. You know, everything is good. Cocaine does that to people. Mania does that to people. You know, and so you'll hear psychologists who are not very well informed insist upon the utility of happiness. It's like positive emotion has all sorts of downsides. 
Oh, please elaborate. Yeah, well, it, it, it makes you impulsive. And, and like if you're really possessed by positive emotion and all the negative emotion disappears, you get manic. Mm. And manic people are incredibly impulsive. They'll spend all their money because all they see is a huge field of opportunities just waiting for them. Mm. And positive emotion can get you in lots of trouble. That's why you're always telling your kids, if you have kids, to settle down. Quit running around and having so much fun. <laughs> you know, because they're impulsive and, and crazy. I mean, it's really fun and, and exciting, but it's very, very disruptive. It's like a party. Positive emotion is like a party that gets out of hand. So, so you know, you want to be careful that when you're, when you're making a complex decision that you're not in an impulsive and overly enthusiastic state of mind. And mm. partly the way you do that is by talking to other people about it too. Mm. Because they're going to bring their own situational biases to bear on the problem. And mm. that can be enlightening. Like they're focusing on different things. Mm. And they're going to bring more things into the foreground that you're not considering and push other things into the background that you think are important. I know there is coming a question about the self-help industry. Because the self-help industry is talking about uh, happiness a lot. What, what is most important for you? Um, what is well, the, well, the, the problem is, is that the idea about what you should aim for mm. is, is not formulated in a sophisticated way by people who describe happiness. Mm. Because what you're really looking for is something more like productive peace. Value was the word I was looking yeah. for, uh, Jordan. Yeah. Well, productive peace is better. Okay. I mean, first of all, happiness is exhausting. Mm. It's tiring. But, but what, mean... what is the reason that people are always searching for happiness? Well, because they don't really understand. that They're not articulating what they want very well. First of all, people don't want to be happy. They want to be not miserable. <laughs> True. And and that's that's really an important distinction because people are more hurt by hurtful things than they're helped by helpful things. They're, we're more sensitive to to pain and destruction, mm. and and for obvious reasons, we can really be hurt. Mm. And so, the first thing people want to do, and this is partly what they mean when I want to be happy, they mean I don't want to be overly anxious and in emotional pain. Mm. I don't want to be overwhelmed with shame and guilt and and self recrimination. So, really, what they want is for negative emotion to be controlled. Mm. And then, if they could have some happiness on top of that, you know, like the meringue on a lemon, on a, on a lemon pie, mm. then that would be, that would exactly be that. It would be a decoration on the top. Mm. It'd be the cherry and the whipped cream and good, good. Some happiness as a spice for life. Mm. Wonderful. But really what you want in a family is something more like productive peace. You want to negotiate an arrangement that works for, for you and for your partner, for you, your partner and your family. And then the surrounding community, now, next week, next month, next year, and into the future. Mm. And you can imagine that as a, as a tiered castle. Mm. And that's, that's Jerusalem. That's the holy city. That's, that's the place where everything is properly balanced. Mm. And that's a place of peace and productivity. And you can live in there. That's the promised land. That's the land of milk and honey, right? Mm. And you can live in there peacefully and productively. But... To think of that as happiness is is insufficiently sophisticated. It, mm. It's it's like a map that only has one word on it. 
how are we going to get anywhere with that? It's mm, like, that's true. You've got to differentiate it. So always searching for happiness is the wrong way to search for search for the right thing, that I understand. Yes, well, that, well, that's a really important point. Mm. Because happiness isn't isn't a goal, it's a side effect. Mm. Oh, oh, very true. So so what I one of the things I would say is that if you want to be if you want your life to be of higher quality, mm. search for responsibility, not happiness. What do you mean about that, uh, Jordan? Responsibility gives your life meaning. Mm. You know, find a partner, treat them well, have some kids, get a career, mm. fix up the world. Mm. That'll that'll those are responsibilities and they're important. Pick something important, reduce mm. suffering, and now and then, if you do that, you'll be happy. Mm. But it'll be you'll have something better than happiness. Mm. That's God. Peace of mind is better than happiness. Uh, a satiated conscience, a, a, a conscience that isn't plaguing you at three in the morning. Hmm. But isn't uh, often uh, happiness also uh, uh, together with accomplishment? But when we feel accomplishment, well, yeah, well, but the, I would say that's 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 part of its relationship with responsibility. Yeah, uh, all very true. Because accomplishment is is responsibility successfully shouldered. Mm. So uh, you can point to something and say, look, I, I did that. I helped make the world a better place. I helped reduce unnecessary suffering. Mm. I put some structures in place that really matter to people. And and that justifies your miserable existence. And then there comes the question of motivation then, uh, Jordan. Uh, I presume that the different personality types have different motivation. Yes. Well, yeah, they do. And and so there's there's a field of responsibility that comes along with each of the temperaments, I would say. So a creative person has to expand the domain of knowledge. And that includes aesthetic knowledge. So because they're often artistic. Mm. And a conscientious person has a duty to to uphold. And an agreeable person has relationships to 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 make. Mm. And a disagreeable person has has um, interests to pursue and 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 challenges to to overcome and dominant positions to be established. Mm. And a neurotic person needs to work on making the world secure and safe. And an extroverted person needs to entertain and 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 act in the social world. Mm. And so those are all different sets of motivations, and they all have their responsibilities. Like an extroverted person can be a great host, hmm. and can can and can bring people together and connect them. Now, an introverted people are more contemplative, as I said, and 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 they're 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 more focused, I think, on their relationship with nature. Hmm. Yeah, for sure. So so each of the temperaments has their own domain of motivation and responsibility. I would say. And but then it's also very important to understand the different temperament, because I, yes, well, I think a lot of people are searching for motivation where they can't find it. Yes, well, they're often unwilling to admit to motivations are as well. Okay, you know, and I think I think this is often troublesome, particularly troublesome in the modern world for women, hmm. because women are more interested in intimate relationships and their maintenance than men. Mm. It's frustrating for women, but <laughs> that I can understand, <laughs> right? And it's not, and it's something very difficult to to bring into harmony with the demands of career, for example. Mm. 
his careers tend to be very competitive. And that's the reason they're getting stressed a lot and get anxious. That and the fact that it's very, it's, you know, when women, especially when they're young, women have complicated lives. They're more mm. complicated than men's lives mm. because they, they have a shorter biological timeline because they have to have children quite early. Mm. And to pack all of that into the first 40 years, say, is very, very complicated. Mm. Well, or the first 30 years, which would be even more optimal. That's even more complicated mm. because it only gives you about 13 years of maturity mm. to, say, after 17, to really get yourself established and sorted out and ready to have kids and on the career track. It's, mm. it's, it's, uh, it's, it's very stressful, and no wonder. It's it's very large burden of complexity to 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 sort out and manage uh, as a last question uh, jordan what do you recommend about uh, relationships and the different temperaments oh tell the truth aim for the good tell the truth and listen because the advantage of having a partner is they don't look at the world the same way you do hmm. And so they can tell you things that you won't be able to understand otherwise. And if you listen to them, first of all, listening does wonders for a relationship. Because at least the other person gets to say what they want. And you never know what they want might be in your best interest. Mm. Generally, it is. Imagine, okay, here's the way of conceptualizing your marriage. <laughs> You're handcuffed together to this person with both arms and with both feet, and you're stuck in a barrel. <laughs> and now you have to not gnaw each other to death for the next 30 years. <laughs> so so there's no such thing as what's good for your partner that's not good for you. Mm. And vice versa. It's like there's no if the partnership is real, the intimate relationship is real. Mm. There's no difference between you and your wife. It's an apparent difference. That's very true, but I can see the obstacle if you have a very driven person in the relationship. Oh, definitely. There's no shortage of obstacles. <laughs> no, but there's advantages to having having a driven person too. Hmm. The question is, how do you take advantage of the advantages and, and mitigate the disadvantages? And, hmm. and that's the case no matter what the temperamental proclivity is. Like if you're with an extrovert, they're going to be lots of fun. Mm. And they're they're laughing and enthusiastic, but they're going to be wanting to party all the time. They're going to be want, wanting to be with people all the time. It's like nothing but fun and games for the extrovert. So, and th that can be a great advantage, but obviously it has to be reined in mm. and brought into harmonious being with all of the other necessities of life, like mm. duty, for example, like having to sleep. Mm. <laughs> so, but what then... Uh... This is the last question, Jordan, uh, okay. because this, this became from what you just said. Uh, what if you're having uh, two parents that are both uh, introverted and you get an extremely extroverted child, for example? Right. Well, that I mean, one of the challenges that parents often have is that and children is that the temperament of the child doesn't match the temperament of the adults. Mm. So, like, maybe you have two conservative parents and you're really high in openness. Well, that's going to be rough because... The conservative parents want everything to stay in the damn boxes where they belong, <laughs> things not to change much. Yeah. And the creative kid is just going to be bouncing off the wall. <laughs> so what, so, what, and, can, the, what and, can the parents do then, Jordan? 
pay attention to the individuality of the child mm. and listen mm. and listen. And again, it's the same thing is that yeah. you, you want to, there's almost nothing that's more important than listening to people. And you, you can do that with a certain amount of detachment. doesn't mean you have to agree with them. Mm. It also doesn't mean that there's any necessarily necessary implication for your forward action. But you have to watch and listen and see what that person is like. Mm. And then you have to encourage them along their way. And that might mean that you're taken out of your zone of comfort. It could easily mean that. Mm. You know, if you, if you have two extroverted parents and you're an introvert, it's going to be very hard for the extroverted parents to figure out that introverted kid. Mm. I mean, they're going to, him or herself, is not going to talk much. She's going to want to spend time alone in his room. It's like, mm. what's up with that kid? <laughs> introverted parents would have no problem with that. They would just understand it. Mm. But extroverts, it's just going to drive them crazy. Something's wrong with that kid. All he wants to do is stay in his room. <laughs> And if you if you have you know if your child is disagreeable and you're agreeable, well, good luck to you. The child, <laughs> my son is very disagreeable, Whew. and uh, although he's very emotionally stable, so very low in neuroticism, so he's very easy to get along with, unless you want him to do something he doesn't want to do. <laughs> in which case, good luck to you. <laughs> he was nine months old. It was so interesting watching him. When he was nine months old, he decided he was going to be master of the spoon and that no one else was going to feed him. But then the little rat would just play all the time <laughs> instead of eating. And so I had a war with him when he was nine months old, when I had to take the spoon back. <laughs> it was unbelievable. Like, he would sit there. I, I, and I knew he was hungry, the little blighter. I'd take the spoon and put it up to his mouth, and he'd go like this. <laughs> You know, just glare at me and he clamp his mouth shut because there's no damn way he was going to open his mouth for me. And that was that. So I have the same obstacle at home. So, yeah, that's really oh, laughing. <clears throat> I mean, nine month old kids can be so uh, tough. It's just not, not my, my daughter was very agreeable. And she, like, if she was doing something and you didn't want her to do it, all you had to do is look at her and she'd quit. My son, it was like that was just the opening. Out war. So how um, I have no, a two and a half year old, and he's extremely disagreeable. Yep. So uh, how do you handle that? Uh, the best way, Jordan. Okay. Well, the first thing the first thing you do is understand that you can always win hmm. if you want, because you're way bigger, and you can be way more patient. Now, whether or not you should always win is a different issue, because hmm. you have to let the little rat win. <laughs> Some of the time, or, or he gets dis, disheartened. Mm. But I would say the first thing you do is detach yourself mm. so that you're not angry. And then you get your disciplinary strategies in order. Mm. And you, you start out with a minor intervention and, and uh, what would you call, escalate as necessary to mm. produce compliance. Mm. You know, so one of the very, very useful things to do with a a particularly temperamental two-year-old is to get him to sit on the steps. It's like if he's misbehaving mm. in a way, and I would consider misbehavior the manifestation of any behavior that would be likely to cause him to be socially disruptive in the community. Okay. Okay, because you don't want people to look with disfavor on your children. Mm. And so if they're behaving in a way that you don't like, but that you know other people wouldn't like, then you need to bring it to a halt because you want other people to Welcome your children. It's really it's the most important thing you can do as a parent. Well, so 
you might have to get him to sit on the steps. I said, go sit on the steps. And the rule is, sit in the steps till you get yourself together. As soon as you're ready to control yourself, then you can get off the steps. Come talk to me. Hmm. And so the child will, if they're particularly disagreeable, there's no way they'll go sit on the steps. <laughs> so then you nope. have to carry them there. Hmm. Because it often comes down to a physical intervention, especially with the two-year-old. It's like, no, you're sitting there. Hmm. And then they'll, they'll, you know, try to run off. You've got to bring them back. No, you're sitting there until I say you can get up, until you behave. And you've got to have the war. It's a dominance dispute hmm. when you're trying to train a, an assertive puppy. Hmm. It's exactly the same thing. It's like, no, no, you're going to listen. You're going to sit there. Hmm. Okay, so then you get that established. You say, okay, you sit there until you get yourself together. Hmm. Then you watch a... You watch the kid. Once they learn that, they'll sit there just angry. <laughs> and like full-fledged rage. Yeah. Two-year-olds are very possessed by emotion. Hmm. But they'll learn how to bring that under control. And that's a great thing if you can facilitate that in your child because they're learning to control their emotions. Oh. Uh, because one strategy I have used is to change his state of mind. So if he's extremely angry, I will start to dance or do something that he's changed. Oh, yeah, that's, a good, that's good too. It, the play thing is a really good idea. Yeah, so you can also change their states because I've seen that it's easier to change the state than uh, making it sit for a while. And but yes, but then, it depends. But, it depends on like it depends on. See, I was thinking more. Maybe your two-year-old has just hit another kid on the head with a truck. Oh, of course. <laughs> then you can some, dance. Some serious <laughs> of course. Yeah. Of course. Yeah, but no, with two-year-olds, you could. And you know, the other thing with two-year-olds is you always want to check: Are they hungry? Mm. Are they tired? Mm. You know, because off are they too hot? Are they too cold? Mm. You know, are, have they? But and that kind of runs the gamut. Yeah. That that's most of a two-year-old's problems: mm. hungry, tired, hot, cold. <laughs> yeah, and uh, getting what they want. The other thing that, that that's really good to do with two-year-olds, and you may already know this, is to wrestle with them. Mm. You said that last time. Right. Oh yes, they love mm. that, and yeah. that's a really good thing because that you help them explore. The nature of their bodies that way, and running after them, they uh, looks like the like the hunting part of it. If you're running after them, oh well, you you know how much kids like to play tag and to play hide and go seek and all of that. Yeah, well, they want to know they want to play hide and seek because they want to know if they're worth finding. (laughs) (laughs) No, if you really don't, if you really don't like your child, you just play hide. (laughs) no i'm no i'm empty for words (laughs) and questions jordan thank you so much for the time again it's uh, been truly enlightening again with me it was very nice and and you know hello to all the norwegians out there thank you so much uh, for your time jordan and uh, have a have a perfect day in canada thank you thank you bye bye you too Bye -bye. bye bye